Thank you for joining us for The Play Readers, a podcast where we discuss unusual or infrequently produced plays. I'm your co-host, Andrea. And I'm Nick. And we are The Play Readers. Now, before we start talking about The Scarecrow, I want to take a minute to thank everyone that's joined us so far for the last couple of episodes. We've nearly reached 100 downloads for this little show, and that means so much. So a big thanks to everyone who's listened so far, and an extra big thanks to anyone who's shared the podcast. But let's get on to The Scarecrow. All right, The Scarecrow, the full title of which Mm -hmm. is The Scarecrow or the Glass of Truth, A Tragedy of the Ludicrous. Right. It was written by Percy McKay. Great name. Yeah, and uh, it was first published in 1908, Mm -hmm. and this was back in the days when it was possible. Well, these days, usually a playwright will write a play And then it'll get produced, and then it'll get published. Mm -hmm. Whereas this was during a time when it was it was more typical, I think, for people to publish a play, and then eventually it would get produced. Okay. So it was first published in 1908, and that's where this originally originates from. Mm -hmm. It was first produced on January 17th, 1911. As far as I know, this is the very first production of this. It was at the Garrick Theater in New York, so on Broadway. Right. Okay. Um, And Percy McKay is actually from a theater family. Isn't that right? He is. His father, and I don't know if we may eventually circle around and talk about one of his father's works. Right. His father was named Steele McKay. An even better name. Yeah, that's (laughs) S-T-E-E-L-E McKay. And he was a famous dramatist of his time. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we talk about American theater specifically, Theater sort of starts with Eugene O'Neill. Right. Whereas the McKays, they predate uh, Eugene O'Neill. Oh, for sure. Uh, Steele McKay's career started around the time the Civil War ended, Mm -hmm. so around the 1860s, and continued up until his death, which I believe was 1894. Mm -hmm. I want to say Percy McKay was pretty young at the time. Yeah. And Steele McKay, he was a playwright. He was an actor. He was a director. He was an all-around dramatist. But I think the thing he's most known for now is the fact that he was an inventor, made a lot of theatrical contraptions. But? But one of his most prominent, his if not the most prominent thing yeah. that he contributed was the folding theater chair. Amazing. I love it. I know that Percy McKay has written about Steele McKay, about his father, quite a bit. Yeah. He wrote a journal article called Steele McKay, Dynamic Artist of the American Theater. I found that on Google Books. Mm -hmm. It was first published in a journal called The Drama. Right. About 1911. Uh, He also wrote a book called Apoc, The Life of Steele McKay, and that was published in 1927. Uh, There were some other prominent McKays, Mm -hmm. because Steele McKay, he had a number of kids. Yeah. Uh, There are a few of them that were prominent. Really, Percy McKay is the one who followed in his father's footsteps. Yeah. And he had a daughter, Percy's sister, named Hazel McKay. Mm -hmm. And she did some some theater as well. I think she was an actress. But she's best known now as being a suffragette. Heck yeah. So there there was a lot of prominence in the McKay family at the time. Percy McKay grows up and he becomes a playwright. Mm hmm. His career starts around 1903 with an adaptation of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales called The Canterbury Pilgrims. Right. Then he had uh, Fenris the Wolf, Jean d'Arc, 
Sappho and Phaon and a comedy called Mater, an American study in comedy. Mm -hmm. Those were all through the 19 aughts and they were all published before they were produced. Sure. He also had a number of plays during the 1910s and that's kind of where his career as a playwright at least. He was still a dramatist and still very, very active in the theater. Yeah. And so you had mentioned some of his previous plays, like, you know, the Canterbury Pilgrims um, being an adaptation. This is an adaptation of a Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, short story, correct? It is. I am not entirely certain how many of his works were adaptations. Mm -hmm. I know the Canterbury Pilgrims was, of course, and I'm Jean d'Arc is probably, you know, a dramatization of the life of the saint. Feathertop was the name of the epic poem of Nathaniel Hawthorne's that uh, the Scarecrow was kind of loosely based on. Percy McKay himself wrote a preface to this play. And in it, he made the argument that it's they're really quite different from each other. Mm-hmm. So he didn't want to claim, now I don't know why he didn't want to claim it was an adaptation, but it was this whole essay, basically, before the play <laughs> that talks about how it's not really an adaptation because the character's a little bit different, mm-hmm. the plot's a little bit different. Sure. So let's get into the play itself. What is the setting? The play is a period piece. It was written in 1908 and first performed in 1911, but the actual play, the the events take place probably in 1692 or 1693. Right. We're talking about the American colonies and Mm -hmm. their witchcraft obsession. Yeah. And there's a direct reference in the script to the Salem witch trials. Okay. So that pretty much dates it. It's got to be 1692 or 1693. Mm -hmm. The language is, it's going to be tricky Mm language-wise. It is a little bit of how people talked in the late 17th century. Right. And a little more of what would have been contemporary English. Sure. So it's a bit of a mix of both. Mm Mm-hmm. There are four acts, and if I was producing this, I would put the intermission between Act 2 and Act 3 because that's the easiest thing to do. Makes perfect sense. The first act takes place in a blacksmith's shop. Mm Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a forge, an anvil, a lot of iron and steel and tools tools all over the place. Uh, The set also requires some oddball items. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a cross between a blacksmith's shop and a pawn shop, sort of. Oh, interesting. If that makes sense, because of the the character who lives there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you've got that. And then the rest of the play, the other three acts, all take place in the main parlor of Justice Gilead Merton, Uh who is a very rich, rich man. So Mm -hmm. we're talking about sort of a fancy place where you meet guests and everything and that's where the rest of the play takes place okay the the set itself i would think especially in a modern context you wouldn't have to go too overboard with what you do for a set Mm -hmm. i think you could probably i mean for example i was in a a production of the crucible brought Mm -hmm. that up once upon a time where the set was really mostly just levels Okay. Made of wood, and that was it. It was was very minimalistic. There weren't a lot of major set pieces or decorations or anything like that. So I think Mm -hmm. you could do that. Interesting. Okay. The major prop of this play, well, there's two significant props that I can think of, but Mm -hmm. the major technical thing Mm -hmm. is a mirror. Right. 
The so mirror of truth. It's called, yeah, the glass of truth. Right. And it is a big, full-sized mirror, and it has curtains on it. So the curtains can be drawn, and it can be opened up to reveal things. And I think in an actual production of The Scarecrow, this would mm-hmm. not be a real mirror. Yeah. For one thing, you'd blind the audience. <laughs> right. But you need for things to reflect differently. Mm-hmm. So you need to be able to put actors and or props mm-hmm. on the other side of the mirror, and you have to be able to stage it so the audience can see it as well. Right. And then there's a pipe. You need a you need smoking on stage. Mm-hmm. I think you could possibly buy an e-pipe that's designed to look like a corncob pipe. Maybe. If you wanted to go that direction. Although these, I mean, in the original production, they probably actually smoked a pipe. Yeah. But I think these days, most theaters, they don't want you smoking on their stage anymore. So so using real tobacco and and a real pipe maybe isn't the best way to do it. You maybe want a pantomime. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there are tons of ways to kind of get around that type of thing. So that's that's the set, mm-hmm. basically. Those are the major technical challenges of this play. And one of the other challenges that you mentioned is that it has a fairly large-sized cast, right? Relatively good-sized, yeah. I broke up the cast a little bit just to kind of get a sense because there's a lot of roles in this where they're really just there to fill out the stage. Oh, okay. They maybe have one or two lines, but that's about it. So there are some roles like that, and there's really, because they're all on stage at the same time, doubling up isn't really an option. Sure. There is a gal, uh, Goody Rickby, who Mm -hmm. is in the very first act, and then she vanishes completely except for a tiny, tiny little cameo. Mm -hmm. If you were to do heavy makeup or a false nose on her or something, you might be able to have her double up with somebody. Maybe. But otherwise, you're probably looking at a cast of 16 actors. Right. Uh, The main cast is five men, three women. Mm -hmm. Uh, That would be Justice Merton, who's one of the main characters. There's Goody Rickby, Lord Raven's Bane, who is the Scarecrow. Right. Dickon, who is the devil. Awesome. I I checked that too. That is the pronunciation. (laughs) Dickon. Right. There is Rachel Merton, Mm -hmm. who is the niece of the Justice. Right. She's sort of the love interest. Sure. There's Cynthia Merton, who is the Justice's sister. And then there's Richard Talbot, who is the young man who is betrothed to Rachel. Got it. And then there's Micah, who Mm -hmm. is a servant. Mm -hmm. Uh, Amongst them, I figure five men, three women. Okay. Amongst the others, there's Captain Bugby who's got sort of a bit of a role. And then there's Minister Dodge, uh, Mistress Dodge, Reverend Master Rand, Reverend Master Todd, Sir Charles Reddington. He's got two sisters with him. I mean, they're they're very formal titles, but yeah. they're, they're very, very small roles. Mm-hmm. And amongst them, I've counting uh, six men and two women for a grand total of 11 men and five women. Okay. It is important that the actor playing Lord Ravensbane mm-hmm. have black hair. Okay. That is an aspect because he is a scarecrow uh-huh. and his hair is made from crow's feathers. Oh, okay. So the actor who plays the role either needs to have black hair or they need to put a wig on him. Right. And I believe, and we didn't talk a lot about adaptations and stuff, so I'm going to throw this out just oh, sort of sure, randomly. Sure. Yeah. 
I took a look online on YouTube to see if anybody had done a production of The Scarecrow and, and uploaded it. Yeah. And I did find it was a production somewhere in Chicago, I want to say. Oh, really? But it was the first seven or eight minutes of the play. Mm-hmm. You know, it gave me sort of an idea of how somebody might stage this. It looked like it was a lower budget production. Mm-hmm. And there is a film adaptation. Yes. Starring Gene Wilder as a young Lord Ravensbane. Yes. There is a tiny snippet of it on YouTube. Well, that's a whole lot of information about the background of this show. Let's actually talk about the plot. The first act is basically what happens is they create the scarecrow, but it Mm -hmm. opens up with, it's the blacksmith's shop. Mm -hmm. It's uh, a woman who is... You know, she's probably in her 30s, but the the play says that she's maybe prematurely aged from her laborious existence. Yeah. So we got a a woman who's maybe around 40, who's a blacksmith, and her name is Goody Rickby, Mm -hmm. and she is a witch. Mm -hmm. Goody Rickby is also a farmer, Mm -hmm. you know, homesteader. And she's creating a scarecrow. Right. And she's making it out of iron and and she's hammering the ribs Uh of the scarecrow. And she's trying to create something that'll fool the crows for sure this year. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that happens when this play opens is she's trying to get the fire to go up in the forge. And so she's talking to this voice Mm -hmm. off stage. And then she she takes these tongs Mm -hmm. and reaches in and pulls out Dickon by his ear. From the from the forge. From the forge. Yeah. Yes. The way they staged it in that one production was kind of interesting. It was like a cauldron. Uh-huh. Right? And she just reached down. There must have been a trap or something like that mm-hmm. behind there and just pulled him up out pulled of Pulled him right up. And Dickon is the devil. Right. The dynamic here between Goody Rickby and Dickon is that Goody Rickby is the more irascible, hot-tempered mm-hmm. aggressor. Mm-hmm. For the most part. And Dickon is kind of the funny one. Okay. So she's Bud Abbott and he's Lou Costello. <laughs> right. Okay. That's that's kind of their dynamic. And I get the impression, it's not real explicit in the script, but I get the impression that there is a lot borrowed from slapstick, mm-hmm. vaudeville, and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of comic interactions. And there's there's not really much to describe. Right. The first seven minutes or show, so of the show is them building this scarecrow. Mm-hmm. And talking about each individual part and every single piece of this scarecrow, and it's all being taken from these these items that are all over the stage, right? And it's meant to be funny. Uh huh. I mean that that much is clear. Although you would need a pretty good cast to find the funny in it, because comedy doesn't age super well. Right. Oh, there's the the dad joke that I mentioned. I was hoping you were going to mention it <laughs> privately. Yes, when they 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 grab a big red beet, uh-huh. as in the vegetable, mm-hmm. to put in as his heart. And Dickon, actually, I'll find the exact quote. Dickon takes the beat and puts it into the chest cavity and says, Hush, dost thou hear it beat? (laughs) It's like an early modern English version of Bob's Burgers right there. I shouldn't laugh. He's evil. We don't like him. Yeah. It's not funny. Well, he's he's a funny devil. It's very funny. You know, this whole thing. (laughs) 
this is not a serious play. No. This is to horror what what maybe Tim Burton is to horror. In fact, I could see Tim Burton directing this. Oh, I bet that'd be wild. Yeah, it's it's definitely kind of sort of his style. Yeah. Anyway, they put together this uh, the scarecrow. Mm-hmm. There's sort of discussion, so there's a little bit of exposition going on here, mm-hmm. and we we start hearing about this guy named Justice Gilead Merton, right? Who's the big cheese in that area? He's a he's politically powerful. He's mm-hmm. sure a very very powerful entity during this period of time, mm-hmm. and. We come to find out that Goody Rickby and Judge Merton at one point in time were intimate. Right. They knew each other. Uh-huh. And he got her pregnant. The dastard. And he ditched her. Right. He kind of tossed her aside and ignored her. And mm-hmm. then the baby eventually died. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's sort of this sad background, although they don't go into a lot of detail right off until later on. Sure. Uh, because this is this is one of those important aspects of the backstory that allows the characters to figure out what's going on later on in the play. Okay. The first we see of another person, it's Rachel Merton coming in, mm-hmm. and remember she's our she's our love interest. She's the the female lead, the ingenue. Yeah, and she comes in and she's been studying witchcraft with Goody Rickby. Oh, really? She's meant to be kind and innocent and this picture of youth and mm-hmm. virginal beauty and, and that whole thing. But she's being swayed by the dark arts. She is. She she finds it kind of fun. Yeah. You know, it's it's a bit of a thrill in her otherwise kind of mundane existence. For sure. And so we find out later on she knows how to read palms, for example. Mm-hmm. She comes in, and what she's looking for is the mirror. Okay. Now, we've seen the Glass of Truth. I think they've even maybe referenced it once or twice before then. But this is the first time we're really focused on this particular set piece. Yeah. Is when Rachel comes in and she wants the Glass of Truth. The reason she wants the Glass of Truth Mm -hmm. is because she is betrothed to a young man by the name of Squire Talbot, Richard Mm -hmm. Talbot. And she wants to make sure that she that he is her true love. Aww. That it's a real, real thing. And she believes that this glass of truth, the glass of truth, mm-hmm. will reveal you for who you really are. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the interesting things that happens during this scene with Rachel is Goody Rickby calls out for a boy, quote unquote boy. And of mm-hmm. course, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, oh, there's another character that they didn't mention. Mm-hmm. The boy, he's he's meant to be slow. He's not quick-witted by any mm-hmm. means and he's there to help move the mirror okay and then we then he looks in the mirror and we see that it's dickon disguised as oh the okay so there's a whole lot of mirror business happening right away and dickon himself is going to be a nightmare <laughs> in terms of figuring out just his entrances and exits alone right the way the script describes it is things like he vanishes into air yeah and how you would do that on the stage, uh-huh. there's some indication that they would that the playwright intended to use a trap door. Okay. If you used a lot of curtains. Or scrim. Or scrim, something mm-hmm. like that might work. But yeah. Dickon is a supernatural being. Yeah. Anyway, after the whole business with the boy, who mm-hmm. turns out to be Dickon, Richard Talbot shows up. 
Oh. So he's checking up on her and seeing what's going on. And he pretty much straight out says, this is witchcraft and I don't want to have any part of it. And she's, but I want the mirror, you know. Uh He assumes, he actually manages to make Goody Rick be pretty irate by suggesting that the mirror was a stolen item. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's kind of the, on the social ladder, she's at the bottom. Right. And she's a woman who's being, who's people kind of, they know she's a witch, but Mm -hmm. nobody's actually done anything about it so far. Mm-hmm. And then they vanish. They take off. I shouldn't say vanish. Vanish. <laughs> not in the case. Not in a play where people actually vanish. Yes. Yes. They <laughs> they take off, and then uh, Justice Merton shows up. Okay. And he comes in in disguise, but then we have some back and forth between him and Goody Rickby, mm-hmm. and he's mad because his niece is interested in the witchcraft, and so he's kind of trying to put a stop to that. Yeah. Uh, he's not thrilled about the mirror and everything, but Goody Rickby has seen him naked. <laughs> right? There's an I'm intimacy sorry. and there's a familiarity there. I just love the way you put that. Yeah. <laughs> Goody Rickby and Justice Merton have known each other <laughs> in the biblical sense. In the biblical sense. And she uses that to every potential it has. Uh-huh. And uh, Justice, I mean, the whole interaction here is Justice Merton trying to throw his weight around and, and threatening to hang her. All right. One of the technical challenges up to this point is, of course, going to be building that scarecrow. Yeah. Because it's going to be center stage and they're putting in ribs and all these pieces. And so you mm-hmm. got this interesting form, mm-hmm. but your props department's going to have to be pretty cre- creative with it. Yeah. In the, the production they did that I saw on YouTube, mm-hmm. they just took a coat rack. Oh, it interesting. It looked like it was just a coat rack, and they started putting stuff on there. And so they can, they they finish up with this, this scarecrow. Yeah. And of note, his arms are flails. Flails come into play later on. Okay. For people who don't know what a flail is, <laughs> in this instance, what they're talking about is a farm tool. Right. That's used for, I want to say, whacking the wheat. Yeah. Threshing or, or with whatever. With the grain. The grains, yes. And it's kind of like, if you know what a nunchucks are... <laughs> Because nunchucks uh-huh. are, are meant for the exact same thing. A flail is like the same thing except much, much longer. Okay. So it's two sticks connected by a, a little piece of chain. Mm-hmm. And they use those for the scarecrow's arms. And they use a pumpkin for his head, which they make frequent reference to. Mm-hmm. And they have a feather duster with crow's feathers in it. Yeah. And they, they take the crow's feathers and that becomes the, the scarecrow's hair. Right. And it's after Justice Merton takes off, and they've been talking about her Goody Rickby's history with Justice Merton. Yeah. That they go, I got an idea. <laughs> what if we create this homunculus mm-hmm. and we say that it's her baby all grown up? <gasps> Because it's just about, it's about 20 years yeah. since all that happens. So they figure, oh, he'd be about 20, 21 years old. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think they, they straight out say he's one in 20 years. Okay. And so they get this idea that we're, they're going to make this scarecrow so good yeah. that it can fool even human beings. Okay. And so the stage directions actually call for a trap door to be utilized. Again, mm-hmm. depending on, on the limitations that you have to work with. Yeah. Uh, what has to happen is this the spell gets cast by Dickon. Uh-huh. And the scarecrow gets swapped out for the actor. 
playing, playing Lord Ravensbane. Okay. There is a, a very, very long title that they use for him later mm-hmm. on. He is Lord Ravensbane, Marquis of Oxford, Baron of Wittenberg, Elector <laughs> of Worms, and <gasps> Count of Cordova. Wow. And the idea is that he will be a young lord mm-hmm. who would be an appropriate suitor for Rachel Merton. Right. And the idea is to get her to fall in love with the Scarecrow mm-hmm. as revenge mm-hmm. against Justice Merton. Right. And the actor, the the stage directions call for him. He's at first a little bit clumsy. Mm-hmm. It, like he can't quite operate himself, but he has to come to kind of full human grace by the end of the act. Yeah. And that's the entirety of the first act. Okay. Is this this scene where they create a scarecrow and by the end he's a real person. Mm-hmm. Now there's this other little bit where he has to smoke this pipe. Mm-hmm. And the pipe is where his breathing comes into play. And if he doesn't smoke this pipe, he dies. Oh, okay. So this is this is that his is... life force. He has to constantly smoke this yeah, pipe. Yeah, it is significant. Okay. <clears throat> and as part of as part of the subterfuge, Dickon inserts himself as a tutor. Oh, okay. So he accompanies the scarecrow, Lord Ravensbane, mm-hmm. as a tutor. Okay. So then we go into Act Two, and the whole scene changes. And I'm I'm guessing in the practical sense, what you're going to be doing is clearing the stage. Sure. Basically, getting all the odds and ends out of the way and making it so it's supposed to be this fancy parlor. Mm-hmm. Lights go up, and we we got the mirror there. Mm-hmm. The mirror was delivered as it was supposed to, so it's it's prominent on the stage once again. Mm-hmm. I would say if you're really trying to minimize things, at very least you're going to want a, a stagehand or someone to come out and move the mirror, right? Just to indicate that it's a different location. Mm-hmm. When the act opens, we've got Rachel and Richard together, mm-hmm. and they are standing before the mirror, and she's kind of preparing him, saying, "Here's what we're going to do." Yeah. And he says, well, I think it's kind of stupid, but okay, if it makes you happy, we'll do it. Mm-hmm. And so they they open the curtains, and it reflects back as they are. Okay. Here's the point in time when the audience can see that this is a legitimate, loving relationship. Okay. So there's something at stake. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. Eventually, the... The two Mertons, the elder Mertons, come in. There's mm-hmm. Justice Gilead Merton and his sister, Cynthia Merton. Mm-hmm. They come in, and he flips out as soon as he sees the mirror because he knows where it's from, and he's like, witchcraft, right, witchcraft, right. can't deal with that sort of thing. And he's yeah. about, he calls on Micah. Micah comes in, says that there are guests. Okay. Right? So he announces them as lords. Okay. And they're from London, and, you know, then he leaves to go get them, and there's a lot of little hubbub. Who could it be? Amongst them, like, oh, my God, we got lords coming in. Uh-huh. So th- this is a big deal to them. Yeah. So they come in, and we've got Lord Ravensbane, mm-hmm. elector of worms, and so on and so forth, uh-huh. and, uh, and his tutor, who introduces himself as Dickinson. <laughs> right? Real good yep. alias right yep. there. Yeah. The Alucard yeah. or Guy in Guy Cognito. Agni- yes. There we go. <laughs> and so Dickinson and Ravensbane, and there's this this little, you know, the meet cute? Yes. When the two lovers see each other and they fall in love with each other. Yeah. That music plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a little moment between Rachel and Lord Ravensbane. Uh-huh. We find out that 
there's this letter that Dickinson uh-huh. forged, and it's supposedly it's from Ravensbane's mother. Okay. The the letter says that he is meant to be betrothed to Justice Burton's niece. Oh. So he's coming in with the expectation that he's there to get his bride, which will be Rachel. Okay. And Dickon is really playful with this because mm-hmm. he refers to her as Mistress R. And he asks, uh, Justice Burton asks, what does R stand for? He looks right at him and says, Rickby. <gasps> so Dickon is pretty brazen about yeah. all of this. Yeah. Through all of this, there's, you know, it's really, really obvious that Rachel and Ravensbane have kind of taken to each other. So mm-hmm. Richard is kind of ticked off. Yeah. To say the least. And he protests, but Justice Merton, you know, he yeah. he squashes that right away. Uh-huh. And Dickon, he gets the whole thing going. He wants he wants a big gathering. To meet everybody. Oh, sure. And, you know, they're making this big deal out of this guy coming in. And he's... There is a small scene during this time where it's just Ravensbane and Merton on stage together. Mm-hmm. So he actually pleads directly to Ravensbane. Mm-hmm. Please don't take my niece away from me. Please, mm-hmm. please. She's all I have. Mm-hmm. But Ravensbane, he's very insistent because Ravensbane has actually fallen in love with Rachel. Mm-hmm. And this becomes an important plot point. Ravensbane has literally fallen in love with her. Okay. So he's he's taken on this. The, he's been created with this specific mission, mm-hmm. but he's becoming the mask. Right. As the scene comes to an end, we have this very big dramatic moment where Ravensbane almost dies because he loses his pipe. Oh. His pipe gets taken away from him and Dickon comes in and packs it up with tobacco. Okay. I mean, there's this whole thing throughout this entire scene. Mm-hmm. Off and on... Uh, Dickon will show up right behind Ravensbane, take the pipe, refill it, and put it back in his mouth. Wow. So Dickon's following him around, constantly rep- repacking that pipe and putting it back into his mouth. Uh-huh. And Richard, of course, he's he is just fuming. Right. He's so mad because, of course, he's, he's the love of his life is being someone's trying to take her away from him. Yeah. So the scene ends with him challenging Ravensbane to a duel. Right. So, Great place for an intermission. Yeah. And so we have an intermission. <laughs> the third act opens up. Uh, it's just later on that same day. Mm-hmm. And on the stage now, uh, there's a table on the stage, mm-hmm. two flails on them. Right. Okay. So the scene opens, and it's just Dickon and Ravensbane, and Dickon is tutoring him, mm-hmm. trying to get him to announce the duel and the formalities of the duel and that sort of thing. Yeah. And so part of that is I present my weapons mm-hmm. and he points out the flails. Okay. Now, if you think about what a flail is and what a <laughs> duel is, yeah, duels are usually fought with pistols or swords yep. or something a little more deadly. Yeah. Try to imagine a duel between two guys with nunchucks. (laughs) That's how goofy this is. Yeah. Right? Just regular old farm tools. Yeah. You might as well have a duel with shovels. Through the entire thing, he's he's being taught and he's doing very, very well, but he's mm-hmm. constantly pining for Rachel. He has just fallen madly in love with her. Aw. And when will I see her again? When will I see her again? He's just, I mean, he is just, you know, yeah. this, this absolutely lovesick puppy. Can <laughs> think of nothing else other than the, the woman who caught his eye. Yeah. Uh, at one point, we got this other character named Captain Bugby. He's not a, he's not a major character, but he's one of the, the 
smaller roles that has kind of a little scene here. Mm-hmm. Captain Bugby comes in, and he is representing Richard Talbot. He's his second. Yeah, he's he's one of he's Richard Talbot's guy. Right. And uh, Ravensbane, he says, I assume you've chosen your weapons for the duel because it's customary to the person challenged to choose the weapons. Mm-hmm. And he goes flails, <laughs> and Bugby <laughs> thinks he's pulling his leg. Uh huh. Bugby assumes that it's a joke and starts laughing and saying, yeah, no, really. Yeah. What are we? I present flails. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so Bugby's having a good time. Uh-huh. He leaves and he's snorting the whole way. Right. Flails, you know, uh-huh. what's up with that? And uh, one of the other interesting things about Bugby is that he sees Ravensbane with a corncob pipe. Uh-huh. So the next time we see him, he's got a corncob pipe. <laughs> So he's sort of turned into this Ravensbane groupie. Wannabe. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. he thinks it's the latest fashion yeah. from London. That's what everybody right? in London's doing, everybody totally. In London's doing it, so he's got to be on top of that. <laughs> so for a, a little role, Captain Bugby's kind of fun. Yeah. He's only got a couple of lines here and there, but he's he's a funny character. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rachel, at one point, after Bugby takes off, uh, Rachel comes in and doesn't see Ravensbane and mm-hmm. uh, Dickinson, and she's reading a poem uh-huh. out loud that was written to her. And it turns out Dickinson wrote the letter okay. with and signed it. The interesting thing is that it's written with an alias, so Rachel has to figure out who it's from. Mm-hmm. The, the signature of the poem is Jack Lanthorn. Okay. What does that sound like? Lanch, Jack Lanthorn. Jack oh. <laughs> Jack-o'-lantern. Right. That's, I love this. <laughs> it is kind of dark. We got witchcraft uh-huh. and we got devilry and everything, but it's totally a comedy. Yeah. I mean, this, if if you had actors who understood where the jokes are and, and that sort of thing, this yeah. could be a hilariously fun play. And it could be a really, really fun play to do in a Halloween season. Yeah. So anyway, um... <laughs> Dickon leaves Rachel and Raven's Bane alone mm-hmm. because that's what he's been pining for this whole time. Mm-hmm. And I, I got down for mushy talk. <laughs> so they uh-huh. they sort of, they woo at each other and, you know, they're just, and um, she shows him the glass of truth, but they don't actually look into it. Mm-hmm. Although there's this weird little thing where, where Dickon walks out of the mirror. Oh, weird. So yeah, uh, Richard comes in. Absolutely decries the witchcraft. Yeah. Tells Ravensbane that he's not a real man. He knows that there's something going on with witchcraft and uh-huh. refuses to duel him. Oh. And he reminds her of when he was he and Rachel looked in the glass earlier mm-hmm. that same day, that he is in fact her true love and all that other stuff. And so Rachel's in this position where she can't decide. Okay. She's trying because she has you know, fall in love with Ravensbane as well. Mm-hmm. And so she's sort of torn between the two. And there's this whole thing with a tassel. She's got a tassel that she mm-hmm. wears. And she says that when they see them late, when she sees him later that evening, mm-hmm. there's going to be this big gathering that they've, they've arranged for. Right. If she's wearing the tassel, that means that she's decided that she wants to be with Ravensbane. Okay. So that becomes an important plot point a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. But it's really just a, a physical 
symbol. Yeah. It's also maybe kind of a way of her saying, I promise I will make my decision and there will be, you know, a sign in no uncertain terms of what that decision has been. Finally, the guests arrive. Right. And Mike, this is kind of standard tradition with a lot of these types of plays. You got a servant who comes in, they announce the people before they come in, and then the people come in. Yeah. Minister and Mistress Dodge. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they come in, and then Captain Bugby's there. You've got the Reverend Master Rand and the Reverend Master Todd from Harvard. Mm-hmm. You got Charles Reddington, and I don't know if I, there's there are there are three Reddingtons, and I never did figure out if they were supposed to be his wife and his daughter, or mm-hmm. if they were his sisters, or what exactly they were. But there's this crowd, basically. That's that's mm-hmm. kind of what it, it doesn't really matter that much who they are. Mm-hmm. And then we have the song. And I mentioned earlier that there's a scene from The Scarecrow with Gene Wilder on YouTube. That's this scene. Okay. Ravensbane sings a song that is titled The Prognostication of the Crows. (laughs) And it is actually written by Dickon. Okay. And the song incorporates the cawing of crows. Oh. So it's been used before. Mm -hmm. There's one thing you need to have when you make this play is you got to have the crow sound effect. Yeah. Because it does get used quite a bit over the course of the play. And you could probably get away with using it even more than what is indicated in the script. Yeah. And in the Gene Wilder version, it's actually kind of an interesting effect because he's singing and Gene Wilder has an amazing singing voice. Yeah. Caw, caw, caw in the background. It really, really adds to the this kind of eerie ambiance that's going on. Right? That's so cool. So if you want an idea of what that can look like, there's, mm-hmm. there is the at least a little bit of that uh, filmed version available online. After the song, Rachel almost puts the tassel on uh-huh. because during the song, she is absolutely enamored mm-hmm. of Ravensbane. And it actually goes so far as she takes the tassel and she's almost putting it on. Mm-hmm. And then Richard disrupts them mm-hmm. with that mirror. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to stage it, I guess. So mm-hmm. she and the scarecrow are, and Ravensbane are right next to each other. And then the yeah. mirror opens up and then you see a scarecrow yeah. on the other side with Ra- with Rachel. Uh-huh. And Rachel freaks. Right. Reach out, freaks out and seeing this. And even Ravensbane freaks out because he thinks that the thing in the mirror is attacking her. <gasps> and so he actually attacks the mirror. Uh-huh. He's got a sword, I think. And mm-hmm. he pokes at the mirror and then discovers that it's a mirror that then he's seeing himself. And he just freaks out. And yeah. that's where the scene ends. Oh, okay. Is him seeing himself in the mirror and this whole mm-hmm. gathering just sort of deteriorates yeah everybody i mean it's witchcraft yep you know people kind of freak out so act four right same place Mm -hmm. lights are down it's later that same night okay ravensbane and sometimes we talk about monologues for actors if actors Mm -hmm. are interested in monologues if you're looking for something kind of challenging yeah the very opening of this scene is a rather long monologue where Ravensbane has this complete existential crisis. Ooh. And it's not bad. Yeah. I mean, it 
After a while, it gets to the point where there's some back and forth because the image starts talking to him. Oh, okay. You're going to probably have that scarecrow from Mm -hmm. the opening scene standing there behind the mirror, plus some actor maybe standing behind the scarecrow speaking the image's words, but the image talks back to him. Okay. Then Dickens shows up. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm looking at this. This is one of these parts of the script that I'm having a hard time with. So it would probably be, it would be up to the director to figure this out. Yeah. Either the image is something separate that's talking to him Mm -hmm. or the image is Dickens. Okay. I mean, he did show up as the boy earlier. Yeah. So it would make a certain degree of sense. It is in character for him. Yeah. Yeah. as well. So, I mean, all of this stuff is going to be kind of tricky to stage anyway, because that mirror, of course, Right. in staging it, you're almost certainly going to have parts where the actor's backs are turned to the audience. Mm-hmm. So there's a fun little challenge for the director. Yeah. Basically, what's happening here is that Ravensbane is real. Mm-hmm. and gained a soul. Okay. He fell in love with Rachel and gained a soul. Mm-hmm. So his love for Rachel has made him a real boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Goody Rickby shows up. So we see finally see Goody Rickby again. She mm-hmm. hasn't been around since the first act. And she's trying to escape being hanged. Because they're after her. Oh, no. And Dickens says, no, no, I got it taken care of. Our plan is going absolutely in accordance with, with the way you want it. Just mm-hmm. You just got to take off and get out of here. Yeah. But he throws her under the bus almost immediately. Oh, really? The crowd shows up. Yeah. And he puts the entire blame on Goody Rickby. Mm-hmm. Half of the party, uh-huh. they take off. After you know, her. Yeah, after her, yeah. Okay. They got, they got lanterns with them and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. They got some it. pitchforks, always good for a mob. Yeah. <laughs> And so we end up with um, just basically the the major characters on mm-hmm. stage. So we got Justice Merton, and we got Rachel and Ravensbane, we got Dickon, we've got I think Richards on stage. Ravensbane speaks out for his love for Rachel. Mm-hmm. He says, "I don't care what I am," and he's I mean he's got this cackle, right? Yeah. Think of crazy cackle uh-huh. because he sees himself as ridiculous. That's yeah. his big thing: is that he is a ridiculous thing because he's a scarecrow. Yeah. And Richard, of course, he's not happy about it because he wants Ravensbane to just say, I don't love you anymore or something. Mm-hmm. He says, no, no, I love Rachel. He ends up basically cursing himself and breaking his pipe. Oh. So Dickon turns to Rachel mm-hmm. and he says something along the lines of, you have outwitted the devil <gasps> and then vanishes. Uh-huh. And then Ravensbane dies, but his reflection is still seen in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And what we see in the reflection at this point is a man. Oh, interesting. And so they say that he collapses, he's he's dead. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the last lines is they say he's dead. And Rachel says, yes, but a man. Right. So it's very melodramatic finish. Mm-hmm. What type of theater outfit do you feel like this would be an appropriate show for? I think it'd be nice if you had a budget. Yeah. I mean, that just kind of goes without saying, so I could easily see professional theaters doing this. But I mean, I could see even high school theaters pulling this off. Yeah. The language would be a challenge, but it's not like high school theaters are doing plays with really easy language. I mean, they do Shakespeare in 
in high school. That's true. And this is this is no more challenging than Shakespeare is. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think it's a lot less challenging. Yeah, I could see professional theaters doing this. I could see community theaters doing it. Mm-hmm. I could see collegiate theaters doing it. Yeah. I could even, you know, like I said, even high school students. I don't I don't think thematically there's anything objectionable here at all. So it's really just more about, you know, having the the needed resources in order to pull off some of the the technical challenges and stuff and uh, being able to come up with creative solutions for, you know, anything you might run up against, right? Pretty much. Okay. And uh, due to the age of this show, it is in the public domain. Is that not? That is correct. Okay. Um, the a lot of the shows we talk about all our shows and who know who owns the rights, who you'd have to mm-hmm. talk to, how you'd go about getting a script. Mm-hmm. This one's a little trickier in some ways, a little easier in other ways. Mm-hmm. The good news is it is public domain. It was first published in 1908. That's well. The the year at this point in time, I think, is 1923. Right. Uh, So anything older than 1923 is typically in the public domain. Mm -hmm. You can find it on Google Books. Mm -hmm. I believe if you've ever been to projectgutenberg.org, you can find digital copies of this. Mm -hmm. And you do not owe anybody any rights as far as this. uh, The McKay descendants are no longer making money off of this. Mm -hmm. I'd say the big challenge here is that nobody's, nobody's selling the script. Right. Like we talked about RUR, for example, Mm -hmm. which is a public domain play, but Samuel French actually does still print. Mm -hmm. I think it's a print-on-demand service, but it does appear that they do still print Mm -hmm. the original 1923 translation of RUR. Mm -hmm. But as far as I know, with The Scarecrow, the only printing was in 1908, outside of anthologies. Oh, okay. So if you're looking at an actual printed copy that somebody else printed, you're looking at a very, very old book. Right. Uh, you might be able to get it through uh, interlibrary loans if you really badly need to get a physical copy, but mm-hmm. I would suggest that it would be pretty deteriorated. Yeah. So you're going to have to print out a copy mm-hmm. and and photocopy it and give it to all your actors. So yeah. There is that aspect that's kind of a drawback. You don't get a nice little acting edition script that fits right in your hand that you can yeah. stick in your pocket that sort of thing mm-hmm. just go to google books and do a search percy mckay scarecrow yeah and it's you'll find it okay all right sounds good uh that's going to do it for the scarecrow our next play is the latent heterosexual by patty chayefsky in the meantime if you've read any of the shows that we've talked about or worked on a production of one let us know on twitter we are at the play readers there and if you'd like to email us instead we are the play readers pod at gmail.com our intro and outro music is delightful d by kevin mcleod as always more info is in the show notes and until next time don't forget to read the stage directions. Mm-hmm.